This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to the Word to Stand In for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's going on in your life. I'll do the best I can. All you have to do is call. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your question to questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. I'm happy you tuned in today. It's Tuesday, so we don't have any business Uh, to deal with. So let me get right to some questions that have been called in. The first one is from Leona. Hope I'm saying that right. Uh, She says, I have two questions. Uh, Where in the Bible does it say God wants us to be happy? Also, where does it say that you must be baptized to go to heaven? Uh, Leona, it doesn't say in the Bible either of those things because neither of those things is true. Now, let me talk for a minute about the happy question, because we humans sort of confuse happiness with joy. God says that our lives are to be filled with joy. But nowhere in the Word does he talk about us being happy. Now, he does say, using the word blessed, Jesus does, especially in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes, blessed are you, the word means happy, happy are you if you do those things. So happiness is a byproduct of obedience. Happy is the poor in spirit. Those kinds of examples are given to us. So happiness is a result of being obedient to the Lord. But joy, happiness sort of fades in and out, comes and goes, but joy never leaves, even in the middle of really difficult times, Leona. Joy is always going to be with us. In His presence there is a fullness of joy. Nehemiah adds, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So if we'll sort of combine those two things, we can always be joyful, even in the middle of sad times, grieving times, really trying or difficult times. So we can be joyful. Happiness depends on circumstances. Joy depends on Jesus. How close we are. Are we in fellowship with him? So God isn't concerned with us being happy He is concerned with us being obedient and we will find things that we're happy about in the middle of our obedience. Now, I want to emphasize something. When I say God doesn't tell us to be happy, He doesn't care about whether or not we're happy, it doesn't mean God is just this grouch in heaven. It just means that as we pursue happiness, things that satisfy our flesh, what we end up learning is that those things didn't bring us any real happiness at all. So it doesn't say God wants us to be happy. Now, uh, the second question, where does it say you must be baptized to go to heaven? It doesn't say that because you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus told the thief on the cross. So baptism 
isn't a requirement for being saved. Believing God, faith in Jesus, that's what's required to be saved. And if you're saved, if you're born again, then you're going to go to heaven. You know, one of the things that we do every year, we have a big, big baptism event uh, at at a river um, not too awful far from here. And, um, you know, we get hundreds and hundreds of people that come out. I'm usually in the water for two to three hours. And it's just one of those really neat events. People like their baptisms to be memorable. Well, we're going to cancel our baptism, or we've had to cancel our baptism this year. The people, because of the COVID-19, didn't want crowds out at their spot on the river. And so we get that. You think Jesus doesn't understand that? So you don't have to be baptized to be saved. You ought to be baptized because you are saved. Now, when I've said that before, especially the Church of Christ folks and others who are more legalistic, uh, they'll point out, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Uh, they, They don't understand the context, the very Jewish context of Acts chapter 2. Paul the Apostle himself said that he didn't baptize any, and then he remembered a couple that he baptized. If baptism was necessary, he'd baptize everybody. He'd been going around dunking people. There's that scene in the movie Nacho Libre where Nacho's with his friend El Escaleto, and he just dunks him real quick. Why? Because he wanted to be baptized. But see, that's how we treat baptism. Like it's necessary when only believing in Jesus Christ is necessary. So, Leona, I hope that answers your question. Good questions. I appreciate very, very much the question. Here is a question from our friend Ruben from Seguin. He says, um, yesterday he had a question for Pastor On, but he says, I think I took too long talking to him today. So here's the question that he asked to be passed on to me. Why did God prefer Abel's sacrifice rather than Cain's sacrifice? The Bible doesn't say why God preferred the one over the other. Reuben, the Bible does say why God preferred one over the other. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was committed as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by his faith he still speaks, even though he is dead. One verse that explains that whole difficult passage in Genesis. So, Abel offered God a better sacrifice because it was combined with faith. Now, here's what we have to remember about Cain and Abel and that whole sordid incident. They had been offering sacrifices since the family, Adam and Eve, had been banished from the Garden of Eden. We know that because when um, Genesis chapter 3, when they fell, uh, they were trying to cover their nakedness. We, we, we saw we were naked and we were ashamed. They tried to cover their nakedness with a fig tree, that, a fig leaf. That's not going to work. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. God instructed them. We don't have the specific instruction, but God instructed them to to, to offer sacrifice of an animal. The next time we see Adam and Eve, they're covered in animal skins. So something had to die. Well, Adam would have passed that on to his kids. And, you know, these are adults by the time we get to the, the offerings and the murder of Abel by Cain. Uh, year after year, they would have made the obedient sacrifices. And we come to a place in Cain's life where he didn't want to offer sacrifice. It was Abel's job. He was the herdsman. And Cain would have looked at that and said, well, he gets to offer the work of his hands. Well, I'm a, a farmer. I want to offer the work of my hands. So he brought God an offering according to the work of his hands. But that wasn't the offering God required. They knew what the offering was. So Cain brought an offering that was acceptable to him, but not acceptable to God. And that's the reason that God didn't accept his offering. And to show you where Cain's heart was when he saw that his brother Abel's offering was acceptable, because it was one they'd always been giving, well, it was at that point that um, 
Cain became murderous in intent. So Abel offered the sacrifice by faith, Reuben. Cain offered a sacrifice according to the work of his hands. Now, there's a reason that story matters so much to us. I think a lot of Christians, and I'm going to say real Christians, genuine believers, a lot of us want to come to God on our terms. We want to do what God wants us to do, but we want to do it our way. And whenever we get into that position, we've got to realize that we're offering God a sacrifice that isn't going to be acceptable. Not only do we have to do it um, um, with the right heart, but we've got to do it precisely the way that he told us to do it. Cain did not. Abel did. Reuben, that's why uh, his sacrifice was uh, acceptable and Cain's was not. Here is a question from, I thought I had another one, I can't find it, I'll get it, probably at the break. Uh, this one is from Charles. Pastor Ron, what does Romans 12.1 have to do with worship? Charles, um, that's real worship. I'm going to be quoting a couple different versions. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 is is kicking off into the practical section of Romans. He's just, for eight chapters, Paul has given the best treatment of of our need for Jesus Christ ever. Then in 9, 10, and 11, he uses Israel as an example of God's faithfulness, even when Israel was unfaithful. And so when he begins in Romans chapter 12, here's what he says. He said, therefore, I tell our church all the time, when you see therefore, find out what it's there for. It connects to the last chapter or whatever has been communicated through the book at this point in this case. He says, therefore, brothers, I beseech you, I urge you, in view of God's mercy. Now, we put it this way. Because of everything God did for you in those first eight chapters of Romans, and because he was faithful to Israel when faithful when Israel was faithless. Here then is how you ought to respond. And here's what he says. Uh, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your, the King James says, reasonable service. The NIV says your genuine act of worship. So Charles... Romans 12.1 has everything to do with worship. If you're not worshiping God on his terms, if you're not responding with a grateful heart to everything that he's done for you, and I'm not talking about just once, I'm talking about every day, then your worship to the Lord is insincere. It's disingenuous. Years ago, and I mean, I'm just brand new a believer. Uh, Paul and I were going to uh, a church, Calvary Chapel of the Chino Valley. Pastor David Rosales is now a friend of mine, but uh, back then I didn't know him at all, and I'm brand new. I'm just trying to find a church that, that really is teaching the Bible. And uh, Paul and I were in our car, and we're in the parking lot going through these lines. It's a big church, so lots and lots of cars. And uh, next to us, the ushers, or the, the, the parking lot ushers, are telling us where to park. And uh, this, this car pulls next to us, and the mom and the dad get out of the car, and there's several kids, and the mom and the dad are yelling at each other. They're yelling at the kids. I mean, it was just awful. And I'm thinking, well, Christians act like this? I didn't know Christians acted like that. And they're yelling, and they're angry. Uh, we went into the worship service. Um, we're sitting there, and just as it would have, I think this is something God wanted me to see, as as luck would have it, I look just a row in front of me and just a few seats down, and there are the mom and dad of the children in the car. The music starts, their arms are up, and they're praising the Lord, and I just thought, my goodness. They act like that in the parking lot, and they come in here, the music starts, and all of a sudden their arms are up, and they're singing love songs to God. And that was not a sincere act of worship. Well, Charles, in the same way, in exactly the same way, when we're not being obedient to the Lord, 
when we're quenching the work the Spirit wants to do. And yet, because music fires up, we get emotional. That's not genuine worship. So what Paul is telling us is if you want your worship to be genuine, it begins with you offering your body as a living sacrifice. It was interesting in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were dead. They were thrown on the altar and completely consumed. Now think about those sacrifices for a moment. They put uh, animals on that, that, that altar of fire. Innards, fat, everything. And, and, and suddenly you could smell the fat being offered to God. The smell would be heavenly. And then it would be totally consumed. Well, that's the sacrifice that Paul is bringing to mind here. That as Christians, every day we should be on that altar of sacrifice to be completely consumed for God and to God every day, all day. And if we're not doing that, then worship becomes just words. Worship becomes just a song. You know, Charles, my last thought here is this. In our culture, we sort of equate worship with music. And it's okay. That's, that's culture. We're not going to change that, and, 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 and nor would I even if I could. Um, but, but, but if you look at sacrifices, especially throughout the Old Testament, if you take that Old Testament sacrificial picture all the way to the cross at Calvary, every time people were worshiping, something died. It had nothing to do with music. Something died. Well, we who are believers need to die to ourselves every day. And that's what Paul is saying. Offer your bodies as living, as opposed to the dead sacrifices on the Jewish altar. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship or your genuine or sincere act of worship. And I really love the King James, your reasonable service in view of everything that God has done. So Charles, I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you for asking the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. John says, why is it that God allows such severe suffering and pain in a world he loves? Um, John, what's the alternative? Uh, We live in a fallen world. Man has rebelled against God. We live in a fallen world. There's going to be suffering. Even at the very beginning, he, he said to Eve, your labor will be increased during childbirth. There's going to be pain. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Um, to Adam, the ground will now need to be tended. It's going to grow up instead of beautiful plants and flowers. The, the land's going to grow thickets and thorns. We can't blame God for that. We are in rebellion against God. Our suffering is a self-inflicted wound. Now, even the most righteous among us is subject to a world that is under the curse of the fall. Even the ground cries out for redemption. So, John, the suffering just happens. The alternative? God judges everybody and comes back and makes all things new. He's going to do that eventually. He's just not ready to do it now because the full number of Gentiles, according to Romans 11, has not yet come in. So God allows suffering and pain because there's still people that he loves enough he wants to save. And John, anytime you think you need proof that God loves you, you're not going to find that proof in a world without pain or suffering. You're going to find that proof at the cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary. For God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't demand anything. He didn't ask anything. For God so loved the world that he gave. I wish John 3.16 stopped right there. For God so loved the world that he gave. Why is there pain and suffering? Let me ask the question. Why did God allow his son to suffer such a cruel and violent death? He did it because he loved the world. He loved you, John, and he loved me. 
That is something to shout about, something to be really, really grateful to God for. I wish especially John Christians would stop blaming God for the bad stuff that goes on. Why did God let this happen? What we're really saying is, why did you let it happen to me? Why am I hurting? Why am I suffering? When the reality is, is that the world has always been suffering since Genesis chapter 3. And it's mankind's fault. As is most of the suffering in our lives individually, self-inflicted wounds. Jesus promised to be with us. He invites us to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus never asked, why am I doing this? He knew. Nothing has changed. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. I think we're in five minutes. Is that what that message was? Um, Anonymous says, does the Bible address Christian couples who deliberately do not want to have children? Is this sin? Um, You know, the Bible only addresses that marginally uh, in in a general sense. It says, be fruitful and multiply. Um, But uh, Anonymous, um, these are decisions that, that people are free to make. God doesn't wipe out our freedom of choice. And these are decisions that people are free to make. Um, I don't believe it is sin at all. Uh, I think there are people who, uh, some would remain single, uh, others who would remain, though married, childless. And um, uh, I hope they believe that's the will of God. What I always hope and pray, Anonymous, and we deal with this during premarriage counseling here at Calvary Chapel, um, what I tell them, I, I hope you've prayed and sought the will of God on this rather than just made a decision based on what you think is right or what suits you. And I believe it's our responsibility as Christians, going back to that Romans 12:1 question, it's our responsibility as Christians to say um, to the Lord, okay, what's your plan for this marriage? Instead of saying, well, well, Lord, we want to get to know each other. We don't want to have kids for two years or five years. And sometimes we don't ever want to have kids. We just want to serve you. Well, we owe it to the Lord. We call him Lord. We owe it to him to say, Jesus, what's your plan? And then our responsibility as believers is to embrace his plan. And when I say embrace it, I mean joyfully. We've had a whole bunch of young people that didn't really want babies. And when they finally had a baby, they couldn't imagine life without that child. Likewise, we've had a bunch of women who couldn't carry babies and pleaded with God for the opportunity. So perhaps it's selfish. That depends on their motive. But it certainly doesn't rise to the level of sin. Romans 14, 23 says, Anything not of faith is sin. So this is a matter of conscience, and God has given us the ability to make the choice of our own free will. So I hope that answers your question. I I personally hope nobody wants to miss out on any blessing that God wants to give them. David says... We were chosen before the beginning of time. How can we have free will? Uh, David, I get this question a lot. We were chosen before the beginning of time. That's true. Uh, And yet God gave us free will. But God knew what we were going to do. So God's choice is not causative. God doesn't make things happen. God simply knows the choices we're going to make. It's like reading yesterday, yesterday's newspaper. If I read today's newspaper, I might be surprised by some things that are happening. But if I read yesterday's newspaper and read it again today, I wouldn't be surprised at all because I knew it. Well, God lives in the now. Who should I say sent me, Moses said. Tell him I am sent you. And in this particular case, as it relates to your question, God knew I was going to choose him in January of, I'm sorry, February of 1991. He put up with a lot of mess with, for me, put up with a lot of pain that I caused. But he never changed his mind about it because he knew I was going to be his. First Peter chapter 1. Romans eight twenty nine. 
God's choices are made according to the foreknowledge of God. And God knows exactly how we're going to exercise our free will. He doesn't cause us to make the choice. We've got to make it independent. We've got to make it on our own. But he knows exactly the choice we're going to make. So never despair, David. You're not going to be forced by God to do anything. He has a plan for you. You want to be in that plan. But you've got to choose to be in that plan. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, 340-9585, for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jack. Jack says, do you agree with John MacArthur's move to reopen his church this past week in defiance of the governor's order? Jack, um, every pastor is going to stand before God for the decisions that he makes. Um, John MacArthur, um, who is a very conservative pastor, he's older than I am. Uh, I think this is his 50th year of Pastoring Grace Church. Uh, John MacArthur has uh, been prolific and produced abundant fruit. Um, All of that to say, I think this is one of the best statements as an elder statesman in the church he could have made. Yes, I am in complete agreement with his decision to reopen his church uh, in defiance of the governor's order. I don't know uh, what your perspective is, Jack, but it seems to me, and it clearly seemed to John MacArthur, that um, there is a not-so-subtle attempt by governments to shut down churches. Now, I'm not a conspiracy guy. Um, I'd like to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. But churches have been singled out. Um, last week, uh, we had a question about the, the Calvary Chapel um, uh, th- that went to the Supreme Court with, a, with an emergency injunction request that was denied by a 5-4 vote uh, in Nevada. Uh, casinos, you know, they can only have 50% of the capacity, but that's, that's thousands of people still. And yet churches could only have a maximum of 50 people, no matter how big the sanctuary was. In California, Governor Newsom has rejected any opportunity to sit down with groups of pastors to have a dialogue about this. There's no plan with an end in sight. And so after months and months and months and months of being shut down, the pastors have had enough. And the churches consider themselves essential. We don't expect the world to understand. But church is essential. People are hurting. Isolation is not good for people. And I think John MacArthur did what was best for his flock. I think there was more than 2,000 that attended the service that I saw bits and pieces of online. So obviously his people agreed because they came back in droves. They made a choice. We simply can't stay behind closed doors. We're the light of the world. John MacArthur understands that. 
He understands the value of church. You know, Jack, um, one of the, the orders, and I don't know how closely you've been watching the news about these things, but um, um, one of the orders that Governor Newsom has issued is a ban on singing, worshiping. He says that's the fastest way to spread the virus, and so we're simply banning it. Uh, he's telling us we can't praise God. I think of Peter and John saying, you know, to the Jewish authorities, people they were under the authority of, said, will you tell us what we should do? Should we obey men or should we obey God? And then he said, this is for me. We cannot stop preaching this name. Can you imagine a government official in this nation, whether it's local um, at the state level or at the federal level. Can you imagine somebody trying to keep you from worshiping God? That's what church is. And John MacArthur, along with a whole bunch of others, have just had enough. They're not doing it in secret. They're doing it out in the open. And they stand at the ready to pay any possible consequences that will come as a result of the defiance. There was a, uh, this, this weekend, this Sunday, in two different places in California, one, a beach in San Diego, in defiance of the no worship ban, there was a, a pretty well-known worship guy who Organized an online thing. 5,000 people showed up on a beach in San Diego, along with pastors from some of the local churches. People got saved. The Spirit was moving. Uh, there, there were some people who claimed to have been healed. The devil wants to stop that. The devil's using the government. In Fresno, California, Jack, 2,000 people showed up on the steps of City Hall with amplification to praise God. You just can't tell Christians they can't praise God. I think, Jack, the, the, yes, I do agree with John MacArthur, but it is painful to me to see how easily believers, Christians, have complied with the orders not to go to church. It breaks my heart to see how many churches have, have literally closed down for the remainder of the year abandoning their people, locking the doors to the house of hope. So yeah, I applaud what John MacArthur's done. Fortunately in Texas, we have a governor and an attorney general who is advocating for us so we can, all of us, keep those churches and pastors in prayer in other places. They just can't close the door on the people that God has given them stewardship over. Thanks, Jack, for the for the question. Here is a question from Rebecca. Um, Pastor Ron, will we, will we be able to look down from heaven when we get there and see what's going on on earth? Um, Rebecca, no. If you could see what was going on on earth, heaven wouldn't be heaven. So no, we won't be able to look down. In heaven, there'll be nothing that'll make us sad, nothing that will make us cry. There'll be no pain, no sorrow. If we could get to heaven and look down, can you imagine going to heaven? Jesus said, hi, I'm glad you're here. Would you keep your eyes on San Antonio for me? Now we won't be able to look down on our loved ones. We won't be able to look down and have any effect. We certainly won't be... Um, able to pray. Jesus is the mediator between man and God. Um, so no, we won't be able to look down from heaven and we won't want to. You know, Rebecca, when I think of that moment when we see Jesus, it is going to be the that moment when we realize the value of timelessness. When we're outside of time and space, when there's no beginning and no end, we'll, we'll look into those eyes shining face shining like the sun, the glory of the sun. And at that moment, we'll never, 
ever stop. The song will have 10,000 years and we've only just begun to sing his praises. We're going to be looking at Jesus. We're going to be looking at glory. We're going to be seeing God the Father, God the Spirit. We don't need to look at anything here. It's a romantic idea. People like it. Somehow they get some perverse comfort from it. But Rebecca, no, we won't be able to see because we will see Jesus. For the first time ever, our eyes will be truly on things above and not on the things below. Here's a question from Patricia. What will the role of the Holy Spirit be when everyone is in heaven? Um, You know, Patricia's God, so he'll be ruling and reigning. He'll be receiving worship. Um... You know, we're we're not given details about what heaven is going to look like or what the the roles of the Father, Son, and Spirit are going to be uh, in in any detail at all. Uh, So because he's God, he's going to be uh, ruling and reigning. Um, Father, Son, Spirit, perfect unity. And um, when we're in heaven, the Holy Spirit is going to be just as active, albeit in a different way, but just as active as he was here on earth. 340-9585. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Vicky asks, if a Christian won't get baptized, should they be refused communion? Um, yeah, Vicky. If if somebody told me uh, our, our communion Sunday is the first Sunday of every month, so this coming Sunday is communion. If somebody would come and say, you know, Pastor Ron, I refuse to get baptized, I would tell them, look, today's communion Sunday. You ought not to take communion. You know, it's not that they haven't been baptized, but your question is if they won't get baptized. That's a refusal. That's just blatant disobedience. So, uh, Vicki, I'd want to get to the heart of why they won't be baptized. Um, And yes, if they simply are disobedient, willful sin uh, certainly disqualifies us from fellowship with God. That's what the word communion means. It's the same word, koinonia. We get fellowship and communion from it. Um, They have no fellowship with God. Willful disobedience cuts off fellowship with God. So if I knew, I would tell them not to partake of communion. But, But first I'd ask them why. Baptism is important. It's not necessary for salvation. But it's important because Jesus told us to do it. It was practiced in the book of Acts. It's reinforced in the epistles. So I would really want to know why they don't want to get baptized, and then I would sort of leave it at that. So Vicki, thank you for the question. Nancy says, where did Jesus go between his death and resurrection? Um, we know he went to uh, the center of the earth, the abyss, Greek word is abuso, um, and we know that he had a mission when he was there. That's why he told um, Mary Magdalene not to hold on to him. Don't cling to me, is what he was saying. I got work to do. Uh, he needed to descend into uh, the Luke chapter 16 uh, abyss, the, the center of the earth, where there were two compartments. There was paradise, and then there was the place of torment. And those who were being held in paradise... Remember, the thief on the cross was there. Today you will be with me in paradise. Those are believers from Old Testament times who were saved the same way we are by faith. The difference is we look backwards at the cross. They looked forward to the cross. And uh, Jesus went to set them free. Now, again, they're in a great place. Paradise is a great place. But it wasn't their ultimate resting place because that would be when they're with Jesus. And Jesus went to set them free, and he led captivity captive, and he took them into the presence of his Father. So that's where he went between his death and resurrection. So, Nancy, I hope that answers your question. Luke chapter 16 sort of gives us the, the definitive answer on that. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Uh Marvin says... Um, is Joel Osteen someone I should listen to? Um, no. Let me just say no. He does uh, not 
teach the Bible. He does not proclaim the true gospel. Um, he is not someone that you should pay any attention to at all. Um, Marvin, personally, and it's not up to me to decide, I wouldn't be surprised if he was really saved. Um, but he's certainly not doing God's work uh, at uh, Lakewood Church. Um, not at all. He is um, a good news guy. And sometimes, while the gospel is good news, uh, we've got to be prepared we can be taught to receive the good news, and we got to know how to do it. Joel Osteen is not somebody that any Christian should listen to. And even as I say that, it breaks my heart because there's eighteen to 20,000 people that show up every Sunday uh, at, uh, at his church to listen to him. And how many more, especially during the quarantine period, uh, how many more turn him on their television sets and... Uh, and are further deceived. Remember, what is isolation is not good for people. And if they're listening to false teachers, they need to know where. Josh says, what are the primary weaknesses of the church? Uh, Josh, in my opinion, uh, we need to remember that Jesus is the head of the church. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, the true church. But I think the primary weaknesses of the church in our culture uh, deal with, the, with with not proclaiming the Word of God. We don't teach it. We preach it. We tell stories about it. We do topical Bible studies about it. But remember, the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the only way we can equip people is to teach them, to teach them, show them who Jesus is, apply the Word of God, the living, active Word, in their lives. And if we'll do that, then we're strengthening the church. And I think the fact that we turn away from the Word of God in most churches, again, they preach it, or they'll do a topical study about it, or they'll find Bible verses that fit with the theme they want to communicate. But none of that has any value for the Christian who's struggling with trying to figure out how to use the Word of God and the problem they've got at work or the problem they've got in their home or the things that they're dealing with that they're afraid of. So I think that has been the primary weakness. I've been a Christian for 29 years, Josh, and it is the one thing that I noticed from the beginning is that there are just too many churches that aren't really equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Now, let me, let me also talk about some other primary weaknesses. I think as Christians in the West... We're spoiled. Uh, we expect things to go well, to be easy. We don't expect persecution. We certainly don't expect prosecution. Um, I think um, our church um, culture is is best exemplified by Jesus' letter to the Laodiceans in the book of Revelation. Um, he tells them, look... Um, you say you're rich. But remember, Jesus knows everything. He says, but I say you're poor, pitiful, wretched, blind, and naked. That's a scathing indictment. Not only that, at the end, he says, I'm at the door. I stand at the door and knock. That means Jesus is there. Jesus hasn't even been invited to the church that he's ahead of. And I think in 2020 in the United States of America, and I also think, Josh, that this pandemic is proving my point, we keep Jesus outside. Now, whenever I say this, people get angry and they, they intentionally or willfully or with the help of the devil misunderstand me. So I want to be very careful how I say this. I want you to be very careful how you hear it. Except for those believers who are in high-risk groups, the people that we all say, you need to stay home, you need to protect yourself, you need to protect those around you. I just cannot imagine Christians who will stay home and not go to church. Except those in high-risk categories. Those who are fearful because of the constant onslaught of news. I said at the beginning of this epidemic that I believed the Lord had given me a word. He was going to shake out the church. Not my church, but the church. But he's shaken out my church as well. 
And all I can say is people are doing what seems right to them. They're responding to the fear. They're responding to the media. Instead of saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And I've said this a hundred times. The only thing as a pastor I want my people to do is to say, Jesus, what about me and what about today? Every day. Instead of making plans to watch online, they got to say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go to church? Earlier I had the question about John MacArthur's church. There was thousands of people that couldn't wait to get back into church. Why? Because they knew that's where God would want them to be. And over and over and over, I'm getting people telling me, it's okay, Pastor Ron, I watch you every week, but, but, but you don't get to use your gifts in the body of Christ. Are there risks in going out in public, especially in large gatherings? Yes, there are risks, but who said there weren't going to be risks? Who said there weren't going to be difficult choices to make? And all I'm saying and all I've said from the beginning is that it's not our choice to make. We are Christians. We call him Lord. We're obligated to see what he wants for us to do and do it. And if we're afraid, we do it afraid. So I think faith is a real weakness in the church. I think the lack of teaching of the word is a real weakness in the church. I hope that answers your question, Josh. Here's an anonymous question. It said, how can I reconcile the hard parts of the Bible with the beautiful parts? Well, anonymous, I think it's all beautiful. Um, but, but if I understand the question right, you're thinking, okay, God is a God of love in the New Testament, but he's an angry old mean grouch in the Old Testament. You know, he's killing all the men, the women, and the children. Um, remember, all you got to do is look at Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus' robe is drenched in the blood of his enemies, he destroys them with a word, King of kings and Lord of lords, written on his thigh and on his robe. And he's coming in righteous judgment. Well, in the Old Testament, when people died at the hand of Joshua, at the hand of the Israelites, it was God's judgment. God was patient. God gave them opportunities. God, in one case, the Amorites, he waited for 400 years. I think that's beautiful that God was patient. He waited for me for almost 40 years, Anonymous. That's beautiful. Now, I think there's some other parts of the Bible that we consider hard. That The Lord would say, no, it's beautiful. Flee from sexual immorality. Why wouldn't God want me to be happy? Why wouldn't God want me to enjoy my sexuality? Because God owns you if you're a believer. And even if you're not a believer, God is the one who gave you your sexuality. Just by virtue of him giving you that gift, he owns it and controls it. Submit wives to husbands. That's a hard part. I cannot imagine how difficult it's been for Paula to submit to my leadership in the home considering the way I messed things up for the first half of our marriage, considering how difficult it was those years she prayed for me, for 13 years she prayed for me, and then suddenly I get saved and God tells her now submit to his authority. I can't imagine. In fact, we had a laugh about this the other day. I don't don't know which day it was where she was reading to me and we were praying and talking. I mean, think about the crazy things that I've come home. Paul is the one I run things by first. Paul, I think God wants me to do a free school. She had to really consider that for a moment. Well, how are we going to do that? God said, trust him. He's a godly man. We're getting ready to get started opening a new restaurant for free. Absolutely free. I'd appreciate your prayers, by the way. The name of the restaurant is Unusual Kindness. That's an insane thing to do. We have a free doctor's office. That's insane. Churches don't do these things. And yet I've gone to her and said, 
I think God wants me to do this. How many times in her heart of hearts, now she's a godly woman and she's always going to seek the Lord, but, but just think, how many hard, times in her heart of hearts has she thought, Lord, this man is crazy. And yet it's turned out to be one of the beautiful parts of the Bible. So because you weren't specific with what hard parts versus what beautiful parts, grace is beautiful, but so is holiness. So I think my, my, my suggestion would be sort of an attitude adjustment toward the hard parts and the things that you consider the hard parts. Um, I've got just about one minute left. Here's a one-minute question. Um, Ted says, which attributes of God, or which, I'm sorry, which attribute of God is more important or valuable than all of the others? Um, they're all equally important. They're all equally valued. Um, the one overarching attribute of God is His holiness. When Isaiah had the vision of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His gold. That's what the angels were saying. So Ted, holiness is the one attribute from which all the others spring, but all of them are equal in value and importance. Hey, the phones were quiet today, but thanks for tuning in. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.